8, 7, 6, 5. You have discovered the 542 and the Blue Podcast, discussions of law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains. Hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective sergeant, author and researcher, 4, 3, 2, 1. Thank you, Victoria. In talking about the Asheville area, the western North Carolina area, let's start with a bit of the history lesson. There is an old tradition that Asheville, Buncombe County stands upon the site where many years ago before the Europeans came to this area and the Spaniards, a battle was fought here between two tribes, the Cherokee and possibly the Shawnee or the Catawbas, who were pretty much enemies at that time were at war with the Cherokee on many occasions. There is also a tradition that the lands in this area were a neutral hunting ground for the Cherokee and the Catawbas, that individuals could come to this area without having to worry about being attacked as long as they didn't establish or try to establish any settlement. The area was open to hunting and food gathering for both tribes under treaty. Whether that's true or not, that apparently has been lost to history. Before the arrival of the Europeans to this area, the land where Asheville stands now was most definitely part of the Cherokee Nation. Now in 1540, well-known Spanish explorer Hernando de Soto came to the area bringing the first European visitors, most of them not by choice, of course. This uh, famous general and conqueror of Peru was at that time governor of Cuba. Now, he had made uh, quite a bit of money in his conquering and destroying of Peru. The king made him governor over the Cuban island. De Soto also checked with the emperor and received permission to further explore this area. Charles V granted him the authority to do so. DeSoto sailed out of Havana on May 12, 1539, which just happens to be my birthday, if anyone is interested. He set out with an army of nearly 1,500 men. That's a lot of ships and a lot of people. DeSoto started on an expedition in conquest and discovery on the American continent. Most of the history of DeSoto and his explorations and conquering is well known and documented. Uh, he proceeded on his journey up north from Florida where he landed from having left Cuba. He moved up and discovered or found the Mississippi River, the mouth of the Mississippi, he crossed it. In his continued explorations, he found the hot springs in Arkansas. Returning southward, he reached Mississippi again, where he died in 1542, around three years' worth of exploring. DeSoto is supposedly buried on the banks of the Mississippi, somewhere where he, close to where he passed away. Now, bringing us back to our area, in 1784, William Davidson and his family settled in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina in an area that would become modern-day Asheville. Property was originally part of a land grant to Davidson from the state of North Carolina for his services during the American Revolution. A permanent settlement was established here in 1785 in what was then known as Edenland. In later years, Daniel Boone was to pass through this area, Davy Crockett, 
as well, courted and ended up marrying Elizabeth Patton, a member of a leading Swannanoa family, the same Pattons that Patton Avenue is named for, Patton Avenue being one of the main thoroughfares in Asheville. Now, on December 5th, 1791, William Davidson, with the aid of Colonel David Vance, and you'll see Mr. Vance's name come up again at the name of his son, who I'll talk about later, and in some more podcasts coming down the line. They established the surrounding area known as Buncombe County. A log courthouse was constructed in 1793 at what is estimated to be now Pack Square. A year later, John Burton obtained state grants of land for the establishment of a settlement that he named Morristown. He laid out 42 half-acre lots, which sold for approximately $2.50 each. This new town was sometimes called Buncombe Courthouse after it was originally established, as well as Morristown. On the second day of June 1922, it's interesting to note that one of Asheville's streets in West Asheville was renamed for John Burton to name is known as Burton Street. Now, the settlement that was established by the Davidsons and Colonel Vance and Mr. Burton grew so much that in 1797, it was officially changed into Asheville, named at that time after the North Carolina governor, Samuel Ashe. Now, in 1828, a road following the French Broad River was completed to East Tennessee. This was called the Buncombe Turnpike. I wrote about this road in Thoroughfare and did a lot of research in doing so in my first novel, Cop and Coin, which is available at Amazon.com and as well as off of my website, ScottLunsfordAuthor.com. The Buncombe Turnpike, also the name of an excellent bluegrass group, carried wagons of settlers moving west, coming from Asheville as well as farther up north in Tennessee and Kentucky. They were bringing herds of cattle, sheep, hogs, and turkeys, and other produce down to population centers south of Asheville. For example, the port of Charleston being one of the receiving centers of a lot of this produce. The town's growth was also helped with the completion of the Asheville and Greenville Plank Road in 1851. Roads were hard to maintain at that time. There was no asphalt and concrete, much too expensive to lay down as a road base. Gravel was used, but it had to be hauled. So they f determined that one of the best, better ways to get over uh, rough terrain was to build this plank road, which they did so in 1851. Now the plank road went down to Greenville and became a favored route for the wealthy to come up to Asheville riding on a four or six horse stagecoach to escape the heat of the summer low country. This is probably the first establishment of a reputation as a health resort and tourist area for Asheville and vicinity. A Mr. James W. Patton owned Bowcatcher Mountain at that time, about 1851. 
the Bowkitcher Mountain can be seen from many locations in Asheville. It looks over uh, the city, some beautiful views. There, Mr. Patton erected a summer house, a kind of a personal resort on top of the mountain. And several young couples did their courting while they were visiting the summer home. And in fact, that is said to have given risen to the name of Bowcatcher. During the war of the, uh, the Civil War, Bowcatcher was fortified. And it was after that war, uh, Mr. William Hazard built a residence also on the mountain and changed the name to Beaumont. Mr. Hazard also had a street named for him that is in the south side down below where City Hall is now and the courthouse. A.C. Avery for many years was a justice of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. He had the opportunity at one time to speak with local historian Mr. Sonley and he advised Mr. Sonley that his engagement to his first wife had been made on a visit to Mr. Patton's summer home on Bowcatcher. The lady he married was a Miss Morrison. You'll recognize that name again and hear it brought up in these podcasts. A sister of the wife of Stonewall Jackson, the wife of Confederate General D.H. Hill. In the 1860s, Again, the Confederate government was running the city during the war between the states. At one point after the fall of the Confederate capital of Richmond, Asheville was considered as a possible new Confederate capital. It was thought that at the time, Asheville would be ideal due to the natural defenses we had here, the surrounding mountains. You, in order to get in, you had to come through certain valleys that were easily patrolled and watched. There was also an armory located here, manufacturing arms for the Confederate government and the Confederate Army. The idea itself was short-lived as the Confederacy soon fell. Union troops marched on Asheville and established custody of the city and surrounding area. Now there is an interesting story about the occupation of Asheville. A troop of African-American soldiers were posted here in Asheville. Four of these soldiers at one point were accused of a sexual assault on a woman near Weaverville, which is north of the city of Asheville, for those of you who do not know. They were tried and found guilty and executed. Uh, during the military trial, the men were not allowed to give testimony in their own defense. Records indicate it was determined that because of their race, could not be sworn to testify in their defense. And considering they were from an African-American unit, any alibi that was presented or could be presented by their peers and fellow troopers could also not be heard and admitted into evidence for the same reason. These young men were found guilty and quickly executed by the same men who were not permitted to give possible testimony in their defense. Mr. Robert Vance, brother to the governor of North Carolina at the time, Sebulon Vance, Robert watched the trial and execution that occurred 
and related this information to his brother who was being held by federal authorities at that time since he was the governor of a confederate state. The men were buried pretty much where they fell and the spot is known locally today as Five Points, the intersection of Broadway and Chestnut. Their graves were discovered in 1930 when road construction in the area was occurring, widening and straightening the road in that location. The bodies were dug up and moved nearby quietly without any fanfare and reburied. I spoke to a gentleman when I was first hired in 1987 who had been a longtime city employee. And he told me and showed me a spot in that area where he said the bodies were buried. To my knowledge, there is no concrete evidence about exactly where the bodies were buried, but he pointed out a spot to me. And like I said, he had been with the city for a long time and may have been around when the bodies were moved. But that spot is called Five Points. There are some historical markers there. I would highly recommend anyone checking those out. And while you're there, swing by Five Points Restaurant. Excellent establishment. Uh, it's been there for a very long time, held by several families and an excellent place to eat. Now, going back to our, our history, in 1878, because of railroad advances in Asheville and Western North Carolina, the area acquired the descriptive phase, the land of the sky. Now, this came from a book written by Frances Ternand of Salisbury. She was writing under the nom de plume of Christian Reed at the time. The nickname of the land of the sky quickly caught on and spread around the mountain areas and the communities here and helped cement our ties as a tourist destination. In May 1983, due to the more incoming tourists and visitors we had, it was determined that we needed to have some street lights established. Dr. J.H. Williams was appointed to be superintendent over city lighting, and his job was to make sure that there was enough lighting and the lighting was placed in the proper locations, and somebody went by and literally physically lit each street lamp at night. A town marshal was also authorized and a location to store and impound cattle that were taken up for violation of city ordinances was also put together at that particular meeting. I imagine very similar to today when local governments impound or store vehicles for improper parking or blocking the way or hazard situations. Those vehicles are, are removed to an impound lot. Since the 1800s, there wasn't any vehicles. Horses and cattle and things like that were actually quite common in the streets. I imagine you had to have a storage facility for those conveyances as well. Of course, the 1890s and 1900s, we had an increase in competition on the railroads. The railroad business was giving a lot of very strong competition to the steamboat lines and the sailing business. If one wanted to come to Charleston from New York, before that you would take the 
steamer from New York to Charleston. Today, at that time, with the railroads, uh, it became more desirable to take the train through the country, that area, and you'd be passing through different regions and cities and communities, also adding to the financial stability of those towns as well, Asheville being included in one of them. Today, Asheville continues to grow and adapt to the changing times and our changing population. On my next podcast, I'm going to be discussing the 1890s to 1900s again here in the Carolinas, talking about some of the narrator wells who have made Asheville home and some of the ones that just passed through. For example, uh, Lord Bresford, known in real life by the name Sidney Larcellus. He's better known to most people around here as the Duke of Asheville. The Duke passed away here in Asheville from TB after a very short time, but he lingered on. He stayed here for close to 10 years in a mummified state, being embalmed because nobody picked up the body. We'll discuss why that happened and some of the adventures that the Duke had after he passed. I appreciate your time and listening to this podcast. If you have any questions or comments or would like to make suggestions, I'm always open to constructive criticism, especially by email uh, because it's so easy to delete. You can Reach me by my contact page on my website, scottlunsfordauthor.com, and I would very much like to hear from you. Thank you for your time, and I hope you've enjoyed this brief podcast and looking forward to some more in the future. Thank you very much. Five, four, three, two, one. You have been listening to the 542 and the Blue Podcast, discussions of law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains, hosted by Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast, go to scottlunsfordauthor.com. There you will find a link to the podcast website and information on Scott's books and how to order them. Scott can be reached through the message portal on the contact page. This is Victoria. Background theme. Mystery Sacks by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons. By Attribution 3.0. See License www.creativecommons.org backslash. Licenses by 3.0.